This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Rooseville, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. This is a hard lesson for some of us, that the choice as to whether or not we will rid the country of racism is a choice that white America has to make. What are you willing to do after you hear about our pain and our trauma and then do the work within yourself to combat white supremacy and white privilege in your circles of awareness and influence? It's not enough to simply not be racist. You have to actively seek to be anti-racist. And when we hear allyship, if I were to speak to my white sisters and my white brothers, but they always seem to have an issue when we say share the wealth. So I need them to be intentional in writing the checks. And to my Progressive folk and my snowgressive folk and those that say that I am a leftist, I need you to be intentional in adding a few zeros to the left of the decimal point. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. America's chickens coming home. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Passes a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God. Our 
Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening to all of you out there, and welcome. And thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. This is the Truth Sanctuary, and you are indeed welcome. For those of you who are out there and you'd like to join our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. If you're not registered, you must register with a username and a password, and you just simply enter. We have plenty of seats up front. I see that Alpha is with us, and uh, we have been framed as we come in. I I call it the message parade with the women who have made a difference in securing and claiming the agency of the vote. So thank you for coming in and um, joining us. Let me tell you about what we're doing tonight. Um, But before I do that, I do want to bring to your attention so that you maintain a certain high level of awareness about what's happening with the SARS-CoV-19 coronavirus pandemic here in the United States. There are currently a total of 10.9 million people who live in the United States who have been infected by this virus. There have been 200 145,000 deaths. Currently, there are 68,500 citizens in hospital. And the daily case increase for this week as of Friday, 150,000 people are being infected daily. Um, we had a spike on, on that was reported on Friday, um, and, and we actually um, had a record in the, in the spike in new cases on Friday of 250,000. That's the record. And I'm asking uh, the Our Common Ground family and your family and friends and people that you know and care about your neighbors to be safe, to take the precautions prescribed by the medical and science community so that we can get through this together. I don't know if you made note of the, ah, give me a break, MAGA Million March rally, whatever, Uh, stop the steal, proud boys, Trump crazies, 
in Washington, D.C. today. There were not millions as was proclaimed and still being claimed, uh, tens of thousands, and they were met by counter-protesters uh, at Black Lives Matter Plaza marching to the Supreme Court. Um, I don't think, folks, that we're going to be rid of this kind of activity. So we just simply have to be cautious and on alert because there are those who wish to perpetuate the chaos and the craziness. So stay watch. Tonight at Our Common Ground, the bill is now overdue. And our guest, you know her. She's been with us before. She is an Our Common Ground voice. <laughs> and we are so glad to have Dr. Miriam Duchess-Harris, a professor, author, civic activist, and thought leader. She is the chair of the American Studies Department at McAllister College in Minnesota. Um, she was a fellow Mays, she was a Mellon Mays fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. She graduated in 1991 with a degree in American history. Six years later, she earned her Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of Minnesota and did her postdoctoral fellowship at the Institute on Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota Law School and at the Womanist Studies Consortium at the University of Georgia. She earned her Juris Doctorate in January 2011, and has an expertise in civil rights law. And in 2015, the Minnesota Association of Black Lawyers chose her to receive the Profiles in Courage Award. At the time, she joined us here at Our Common Ground. She is the curator of the Duchess Harris Collection, which has more than 40 books written for 3rd to 12th graders. McAllister College President Brian Rosenberg interviewed her about a forthcoming and final and, 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 and finalized uh, title uh, on the hashtag MeToo movement, which is her book. She's a scholar of contemporary African-American history and political therapy, uh, theory. Her academic books include Racially Writing the Republic, Races, Race Rebels, and Transformations of American Identity. She is also the author of Black Feminist Politics from Kennedy to Clinton, uh, Black Feminist Politics from Kennedy to Obama, Black Feminist Politics from Kennedy to Trump, in, uh, which was published in 2018, and also Black Girl Magic Beyond the Hashtag, 21st Century Acts of Self-Definition. She resides in Vadnai Heights, Minnesota, and her three children, Austin, Avi, and Zach. She uh, will tell you about her cat, Skittles, and her stray cat, Tommy, and her poodle, 
Mocha. Duchess Harris, it's so good to have you back with us. My sister, my my soror, how are you? Janice, I have missed you so much. I'm so glad I to be know. here tonight, soror. Wait a minute, a I just want to know. I just want to know. Mm-hmm. You have these three beautiful children. <laughs> They're growing up so wonderful and they are so big. What are you going to do? They're not asking Girl, you for I, all the help. <laughs> Girl, I'm going to cry when they move out. So my daughter just came home from her part-time job and locked the keys in the car. And, you know, this is this is where we are. You know, she'll, she'll be moving out in like 18 months. So I'm, try, I'm trying Wait a minute. to launch, Abby, launch her away. In eight, yes. Abby is going to college in 18 months? Girl, oh, she's going to be 17 next month. Baby Abby. Oh, Lord. Baby, baby Abby. Oh. <laughs> well, I am just you all so can, pleased. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you went through, you, well, Imani has her own apartment. <laughs> I'm still getting over that. Oh. But you went through so many years, Duchess, of mm. just one book after another, one publication after mm. another. Every time I saw you, you were on TV. You were on the, you were like the internet buzz of the year for years <laughs> at a time. <laughs> How do you have the time to do all of this and teach a full, full load? You know, I just, I don't know. I think in some ways I might be a late bloomer for an academic. So I was just catching up. And now I'm here. Well, we are, we are so, you know, we are so pleased to have someone who is able to articulate, to raise, to expand, to extrapolate all the stuff that we have gone through. And and you and I have not really talked uh, since the Obama years. I mean, we've been going through this four yeah. years uh, yeah. stuff, and, and I, I just couldn't wait to to have you with us because – we have to look at this from so many perspectives, from uh, from one movement to the next movement. It was the Black Lives Matter, and you wrote the book Black Lives Matter. And then uh, we we had the pussy people, and we need to talk about that because I'm still looking for them, what happened to them. Um, right. And so let's let's start talking at this place. The place where we are now, um, if we look at the election uh, results, uh, if we look at them by income, by gender and race, um, and we look at um, how, I call it, you know, I've always thought of a black vote as currency. If we look at how we Spent as a people, as a race, our currency. Um, we we've got to look at like ninety four percent of all black women who voted in two thousand sixteen voted for Hillary Clinton. Ninety one percent 
of black women who voted for Joe Biden in 2020. There's been some shifts. Tell me about what's happening in America and how it speaks to how we have developed, whether or not we have developed uh, a political capital. Oh, my goodness. I think we have tremendous political capital. And I think the most valuable player in all of this right now is Stacey Abrams. I think what she has done by turning Georgia blue is nothing short of a Nobel Peace Prize. It's absolutely amazing. Obama didn't even win Georgia. A Democrat hasn't won Georgia for 28 years. Um, And so the way I look at how black women are influencing electoral politics is that we are only 7% of America's voters, but we are the most consistent voters in the Democratic Party, and we're the only group that votes in a block. And so that's one of the things that makes us different from Latinos. Latinos divide their vote, and other groups divide their vote, and white women will um, jump from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party in a heartbeat. Black women vote in solidarity, and then it has influence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I want to explore with you is what does that mean in terms of how we approach a black agenda? You know, that's a tricky question because we were so excited about Obama we didn't even know how to put together a black agenda. Um, people were so shocked that he even got there that if we take a trip down memory lane, he didn't talk about domestic U.S. race relations his entire first term. So many people, um, you know, cannot remember it that way. But that, that's actually the fact. Um, the first time he spoke publicly about race was when Henry Louis Gates got arrested in his home and he tried to play <laughs> down the whole my... event. Right, 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 with the beer summit, right? But, but I mean, you have to figure that it had been three and a half years of being president that, you know, he hadn't spoken about U.S. race relations at all. And then it isn't until actually his second term that you get a conversation about Trayvon Martin. And so as citizens, we didn't know how to craft um, a black agenda for him. Um, And people collectively wanted him to do well. Um, Young people, however, were frustrated with President Obama, and that's why they started Black Lives Matter when he was still president. So, I mean, you know, if we're going to be honest about it, Black Lives Matter is not an indictment of Trump. It was actually in many ways an indictment of Obama. Um, What we need to do now that we have President-elect Obama, Vice President-elect Harris, we need to say um, these are the needs that we have. This is, you know, and we expect you to meet them. And and that's what Congressman Clyburn did with um, Biden. He said, look, um, I hold a lot of power in the Congressional Black Caucus. If I give you the nod, you know you're going to have to pick a black woman as vice president. And so I think we should do the same and say, if it weren't for us, you wouldn't be there. Um, we, we need many things in return. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
you know, one of the things in in in, in uh, you you started you you mentioned Stacy Abrams, and yeah. I want our audience, our listening audience, to understand that Stacy Abrams organized and signed up eight hundred thousand signatures for her Fair Fight organization. And I'm very proud to be one of them. So if we begin to extrapolate the Georgia win, where is ground zero for, excuse me, Mr. President, but um, I haven't finished. Where is that? Right. Right. I I am speaking. (laughs) I I love that. I love that. When she said, I am speaking, I said, oh, my goodness. He doesn't even realize everything that that means. Um, You know, I I think ground zero is for citizens to turn to the Congressional Black Caucus. That is where I have my faith. Right? Uh I have my faith in Karen you mean Bass. the new caucus, not the old caucus, so people understand. We're talking about the new caucus. Right. Well, all the new it, right, right. black caucus. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now even you know with Cory Bush coming from um, the mm-hmm. St. Louis area, right? Like all, tur- turn to them and say, "Help us craft this." Right. You ask like, "What is Ground Zero?" There's so many Ground Zeros, right? It's like I don't yeah, even know yeah. where to begin. I mean, first of all, it's like, what's what's the COVID plan so we don't die? You know, and and if we if we'd had this conversation last year, that that was non-existent, right? But I don't feel like I can, you know, get into police brutality, jobs. The, let's start with not dying. Yes, but. But but see, Duchess, one of the things that I have this vision in my head because you know I'm retired now, and so I can have a lot of a, 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 I've got this big space I have to fill up, and and one of the things that I envision is having a, a black voter based uh, commission in every state in every state where black people would have legislative conventions. And one of the things that would happen in that in those conventions would be what does Florida need? What does Georgia need? What does Minnesota need? What does Oklahoma need? What does New York need? What does Boston, uh, Massachusetts need? And that would be the beginning of developing a legislative slate. For instance, you talk about um, COVID in terms of us not um, being killed. And we need a commission just on that. Um, But we need also a commission on what does defund and reform police mean. For instance, I don't know if you caught Cori Bush yesterday, and I just love that young woman. Yeah. Um, yes, when she her. was wearing a Breonna Taylor mask. And 
people who had just been elected to the House of Representatives was calling her Breonna Taylor because they never ever, they thought that was her name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But see, this is where the credit These goes are people to our sorority, Kimberly Crenshaw, though. Right, but this, this is why mm-hmm. the credit goes, I said this is why the credit goes to our sorority, Kimberly Crenshaw, who knew that if there was not a Say Her Name movement, no one would know the names to say of the women. And so she had the vision. She knew that. And she knew that people who were being elected to Congress would not know who Breonna Taylor was. See, she could see well, it before and, the rest of us. Yeah. You know, and one of the things, and I want to run this by you, Duchess, is the idea of having um, a, a weekend. You know, just like the CBC has a weekend in October a weekend in every state for black people to come together. And part of that has to do with educating people about how the government works, how electoral politics works, how referendum politics works, and issues like what is reparations and why is it important. A, a, a civic academy, a weekend of civic academy, because that's the I, only way that—that's that. uh, the only way that we're going to increase the eight hundred thousand people that Stacey Abrams has organized, and the only way that we're going to organize and give trust to all of the people who did not vote. And I'm going to say this, and I want to hear a response from you and all the black people who voted for Donald Trump. Oh, okay. Before before we get to those black people, I just have to say that I love your concept of each state doing it because I think it's so sophisticated because a lot of people do not have this nuanced understanding of blackness that what you are experiencing in your state is different from what I'm experiencing in my state. So, for instance, one of the reasons why we have Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is because um, Minneapolis now has more Somalis than Mogadishu. A lot of people don't know that. So when you're talking about Mm -hmm. blackness in Minnesota, you're not necessarily talking about descendants of the American slave trade. And so I love your idea about, um, you know, each state should have their own, um, you know, legislative summit, and then we should come together and craft this. I think it's very important. Um, Well, you know, it's also Maine, also Maine, which is why I believe that we we have to separate, you know, when we talk about reparations, we have to separate what is reparations as a debt away from the idea of what is compensation for victims of uh, American white supremacy. Uh, I mean, we've got to we've got to really assess when we talk about black people, who are we talking about? You're right. Yeah. Um and by the by the way, a, a salute to the people of Minnesota. Uh, because I think Representative Omar is just so smart, so sharp, so uh, because she can 
do the critical analysis on the issue of oppression, suppression, and 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 genocide. Oh yeah, uh, and not but, only is she smart, I just have to brag on my state for a minute. We had the highest voter turnout in the nation. Number one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we went to the polls at a rate that was near 80%. It was like 78 or 79%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, let's, let's begin to talk about American, uh, the background under which uh, what we have just, the chaos and the divisions that we have just experienced in this Trump administration and how um, American history speaks to it. I mean, the way American history speaks to it is that this moment is very similar to Reconstruction. Donald Trump is very similar to Andrew Johnson, who became president after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And so what we're going through here is another reconstruction where people don't want to be reconstructed. I mean, you know, for people who study history, um, this is just the changing fame. I mean, it's not surprising at all. You know, I have to give um, a shout-out to my colleague, um, Jelani Cobb, who's on the faculty of Columbia University. He came to um, Who is also an Our Common Ground voice. I know, I know, because you know all the people. You know all the people, Dennis. Um, he came to my institution, McAllister College, the Friday night before the Tuesday election in 2016. And he gave this brilliant talk on Reconstruction because um, he was trained by um, David Levering Lewis, who won the Pulitzer for mm-hmm. his um, Du Bois biography. And Jelani said, history tells us that after progress, and he's talking about eight years of Obama, after progress, there is pushback. And there had to have been 500 people at that talk, and they were so shooketh, okay? They were so shooketh, they barely wanted to clap. They were upset because it was a very Hillary-strong campus. And when I got to campus on Wednesday, I looked at my students and I said, Professor Cobb tried to tell you. And so, you know, that, that's all this is. You know, history lets us know. You know, Donald Trump was inevitable. He's, he's absolutely right in his assessment. Uh, and I think that there are very many people who do not understand the kind of governmental infrastructure destruction destruction or damage that he has done. Um, and and the notion of thinking it through uh, as though we are in um, uh, another, a second reconstruction is, I think, informs us as to how we act, how we go forward. But my concern right now is how we get our community to think through what is the bill, and because it is overdue, how do we collect? 
who's sending the mm. the, the final mm. notice. Mm-hmm. And the notice mm. has to go to Joe Biden. It cannot go yeah. to Donald Trump. Right. Well, I think the notice that needs to go to Joe Biden is that he cannot be Bill Clinton. Right? Like, we cannot be duped by him. Tony Morrison said that Bill Clinton was our first black president, and before his eight years were over, she actually took it back and said she would misread that. We cannot um, give Joe more credit than he deserves, and we cannot allow him to leave us behind because he picked Kamala and he served under Barack Obama. We just can't. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what's the check that we want to collect on? Janice, the checks are so numerous, right? Like, I want police officers to have to live in the city where they police. You know, I want to get rid of um, their immunity from being prosecuted. Um, I want more money to go into public education. I mean, girl, how long is this radio program? Do I have five or six hours what are we doing here? Because I could talk all night about what I want, you know, my check to come for. And, I mean, it has so many zeros on it that, you know, it, it couldn't be filled out with, like, you know, eight points, you know, on a computer, um, you know, because the check is large for many things. hmm hmm So what about the idea, you know, I – I was mentored by uh, Ron Walters in my political um, study and understanding of how you begin to organize um, people to advocate and to successfully and effective uh, turn that advocacy into a community movement. And one of the things that Ron Walters always said is that before you do that, you have to do the assessment. Once the assessment is done, that assessment should provide a guiding manifesto where the people understand what has been agreed upon, you know, unlike ice cube, but what has been agreed upon and how, what we are moving forward on, our guiding principles in dealing with this new administration. Now, you know, I've had some dealings with um, Joe Biden, and I know there are a lot of people out there that are listening who were supporters of Bernie Sanders, and I've had a lot of dealings with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was part of the congressional delegation that I worked with for 20-some years. So my my question to you is, do you think that Kamala Harris is going to be able to serve as a translator for Joe Biden. Because he needs one. Right. You know, I mean, really, the question is, can she be a black whisperer? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know. I need her to be a whisperer with a megaphone. (laughs) Right, right. Um. I think that she's capable, and I think that 
it's just going to be required because I think that after the thrill rubs off a little bit, people are going to have expectations of her. And so, I mean, she's going to have to show up for that. Historically black colleges are going to press her on that. Her sorority and the entire divine nine are going to press her on that. Um, She will be pressed to um, make sure that the needs of black people are heard. So, you know, Will she follow through? No one can predict that. The only thing that I can predict are what the consequences will be if she doesn't. Um, If she doesn't follow through, I think people are going to be, um, you know, vocally um, disgruntled. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But but to delve into that a little bit deeper, I do think that she has been able – uh, to hold on to her capital as a senator, um, that she has been able to balance, that all elected officials have to do, but balance her, her way to secure her seat. And my next question about her is whether or not you uh, in this post-construction, I'm going to start using that. Thank you, Duchess, for that. Uh, I'm gonna, sure. And and if, and if anybody says, I'm going to say, well, well, Dr. Duchess Harris told me, and and Jelani Cobbs told me, and I'm holding on to it. Um, whether or not she has any, and I and. And I don't think it's too early because people operate in their interest no matter who they are. Um, if it's it's not too late for her to be looking at how do I claim 2024 where, where, wherever that might be. That is true, if, but this is this is what she's facing that Barack Obama isn't facing. Barack Obama was fortunate enough to be the first, and so we didn't hold his feet to the fire because we were just giddy. We have experienced, um, you know, a black person um, in that level of the legislative branch, um, you know, in the presidential suite, I mean, um, I think people are going to push her more than they pushed Obama. So, sure, she's mm-hmm. going to want to probably be president in 2024. Sure, a lot of black people are probably going to want that as well. But I don't think that she's going to be given the free pass that Obama was given. He was given a free pass. I mean, I remember the elders talking about, like, isn't he handsome? You know, all the women <laughs> relatives in my family born in the 1930s. Like, he sure is a nice-looking young fella. I mean, no one, and- you know, we 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 don't have time for that now. We are dying. Like, we yeah, can't just sit yeah. around and talk about she's pretty. No one wants to hear that she's pretty. Well, I do know, you know, one of the things that I admired about him, he could uh, push push the buttons. You know, he, he, he knew how to do that. And for those uh, in our listening audience, you should know that Dr. Duchess is the granddaughter of Miriam Daniel Mann, who was a mathematician at NASA. 
and Barack Obama loved her. You could see it in her in his face, like, oh my God. And and at that generation understood what it took, not by Barack Obama, but by the people whose shoulders he stood on for him to be there. And that was the kind that was kind of a you know, to say he was handsome, I I never thought Barack Obama was handsome, but uh, he went ugly, but uh, you know, he's a little bit younger than the folks I'm talking about. I'm talking about the little yeah, old yeah. ladies who were like, "Bless his heart," you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I wasn't talking about bless his heart. <laughs> um, but but I think at at some point what we want to be able to do is to, and I think. I, I think sometimes um, the, the the average citizen doesn't understand to the extent of how politics works in this country or how this government works. But oh, let's move on beyond. Yeah, let's move on beyond uh, Barack Obama and let's talk about what's happening in Georgia specifically around these Senate seats because they are so crucial. And and by the way, I've been telling people um, that during the time that Donald Trump had seized uh, illegally the White House and the presidency, that nothing was going to get done in terms of the protections or the progress, legislative progress, that would benefit black people specifically and target black community needs. It wasn't going to happen. And I am, you know, I am so glad. Uh, I am a big proponent of CDBG funds into cities and towns, and I was so afraid that in a second term, Donald Trump would shut them down. And that would have been so disastrous that it is unspeakable. But but let's go to Georgia for a minute, Duchess, while I've okay. got you. <laughs> this Senate, these two Senate seats are very important to this administration. To what extent do you think that the Democratic Party is going to put in the energy and the money to to assist Warnock and Ossoff to, to to defeat Purdue. Whew. You know, that that is a tough question because I don't feel like I know enough about the inner workings of the Democratic Party of what they're going to do in terms of releasing funds. I think you and I would probably agree on what they should do, but mm-hmm. I have no idea. What should be see? I think that I think that going forward, that one of the things about the bill being overdue, and part of the collection process has got to be at the Democratic Party establishment, at the Democratic Party mechanisms, and I think. Stacey Abrams understands that because when she ran for governor, I, I, I don't think 
You know, for instance, I can't understand why the Democratic Party wasn't in court every day over the performance of Kemp when he was the uh, uh, Secretary of State in Georgia stealing all the votes and corrupting you know, the I process. Think, you know, here, here's my theory. My theory is that we have divisions within the Democratic Party, as most people can see. And I think that the centrist, moderate Democrats have a different strategy than the Democrats who are left in the, in the Democratic Party. The progressive Democrats understand grassroots organizing. That's how they got there. I mean, that's how you have Cory Bush in Congress, right? They understand grassroots organizing. Moderate centrist Democrats are people that believe in the system and will just watch the system unfold, even if the system is rigged. And I think it has everything to do about um, how people in the parties have been socialized. So to give you a perfect example is um, when Jesse Jackson ran for president, that was really formative for me. When he ran for president the first time, I remember watching it on The TV. Rainbow Coalition. Right, right. I, I watched it with my parents, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, this speaks to me. Um, now I'll, I'll reveal my age. I was 15. So I, I didn't understand that, that he was Jesse Jackson and he wasn't necessarily a Democrat. So when I was 23, I started working for the late United States Senator Paul Wellstone, which was pretty, he was really far left, like to be a United States Senator. But when I started interfacing with my colleagues, I was like, oh, you all are Democrats too, <laughs> right? And I was like, I've never, I, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I felt like I had to shake everyone's hand and introduce myself. I was like, I never met no Democrats like you all. But what, but what I didn't realize is that I had been around black Democrats. I'd been around working class Democrats, blue collar Democrats, lower middle class Democrats. I hadn't been around like multimillionaire John F. Kennedy Democrats, Walter Mondale Democrats. Uh-huh. And so that's okay. what I think is going on when you say, you know, why didn't they stop Kemp? If you're like a Walter Mondale Democrat, which is different than you opened up your show with Fannie Lou Hamer, who's a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party Democrat. Right, And I say this about Walter Mondale, having met him, not only does he live here in Minnesota, um, he met his wife, Joan Mondale, McAllister. So, I mean, you know, I, I see my, I've seen Mondale like every year of my life, probably for the last 25 years. Um, that's a certain kind of Democrat that allows the system to unfold. That's mm-hmm. not us. Mm-hmm. That, that's not your progressive. Yeah, that's just like, see, Stacey Abrams is like, it's rigged, let's go up and get in there, right? The other Democrats in Georgia are probably like, well, let's just see how it um, unfolds. See, we know how it's going to unfold. We're not confused. So the Mm -hmm. the moderates are like, trust the system. We're like, we didn't build the system, it's not designed. Well, one of the things that that I'm I'm doing – um, I'm doing. I started doing phone banking into Georgia on Friday, 
I did phone banking for Mike Epsi in Mississippi, and I did phone banking for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. And I'm talking about 16, 24 hours of phone banking, just calling people who were supposed to be registered Democrats. And many times I had conversations with these people about the extent to which they were engaged with the Democratic Party of their state. Um, And many of these people were simply Democrat voters. And some of them, I mean, I had one woman in Mississippi who told me that um, she just didn't have time to switch her her party uh, registration, but she wasn't a Democrat and she wasn't voting for no nigger. So... (laughs) I mean, I took a, I took a lot of abuse, <laughs> and I'm back at it. So one of the things that I want to do uh, with people, uh, two things, is to somehow merge the ideologies of the uh, black people who are Democrats the black left, the black progressive left, uh, the black progressives. I mean, we do have a lot of factions. And one of the things that we need to find is a way of uh, synchronizing uh, those factions to bring change within the machine. And I think... um, Stacey Abrams is one of those people who has begun to 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 that process. But you know, I I had to admonish some people on my Facebook page today and say, stop asking Stacey Abrams to do everything and carry the burden. Why aren't you carrying the burden? If in fact you are uh, concerned about. Um, medical disparities and the management of covid-19 in your in your community you need to be engaging with the political people who can make a difference who can who can somehow change the machine about how it's being addressed if you are um if your biggest concern is reparations then you need to be in educating the people who are inside the machine because the machine is going to carry the day. And I I don't know how to do that, Duchess. Um, What do you think? I mean, what do I think about pushing against the machine? Yeah. How do we educate our community? How do we... Uh, for instance, um, unions uh, organizing, you know, in, I, I live in Florida. Don't tell anybody. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how I got you here. You haven't always lived in Florida. You haven't always lived in Florida, have you? I just moved here after I retired from Boston. I had been in Boston for okay. 50 years. That's don't it. tell anybody. I, was like, I thought you lived in Boston. All right, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so actually this is my uh, ancestral home. I grew up here. 
Okay. But and wow, I, okay. And, and 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 I didn't think about the politics. I just thought black people was with the program <laughs> wherever you go, and that hasn't been the case. But anyway, um, so I, I my 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 concern is that people like you understand. I mean, you were in the you were in the Bush leadership program. That's how that that's the first time you caught my eye. You know. Um, really? But, wow. Yes, that was a long time ago. And that's Bush um, Foundation listeners. That's not President Bush. Lord have mercy. I had to make that distinction. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> I should clarify that. Um, but I, I think one of the things you don't see is you don't see black people who are engaged with uh, party politics and running for uh, vice president of the party, uh, uh, running for chair of the uh, justice uh, committee. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, yeah, I you don't one see of the reasons, that. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why we've lost that is because some of our spaces either don't exist anymore or are smaller. So you talked about union organizing. You know, there have been so many union jobs that um, have disappeared. I remember um, it was probably, I don't know, 14 or 15 years ago that um, St. Paul, Minnesota had a Ford plant, a Ford plant closed. Um, So unions were spaces where people thought about organizing and getting into party politics Churches were spaces, right? So we're, like, at an all-time low of worshiping in church. Um, and not only are we at an all-time low for that, we also, if we do go, we go differently. And what I mean by that is that younger generations um, might go to, like, you know, multiracial churches, um, mm-hmm. which often, you know, have different messages than, you know, old-school, all-black churches. Um, and so I think we have lost some of our cohesiveness, and I think that, um, you know, we have, like, a changing of the demographics because we're more global than we were, like, mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. So, like, think about it, right? So I moved to the Twin Cities in 1991. I have to drive in my car to, like, look for black people. Then the Somali war breaks out in 94, and in 95, I was like, there are black people everywhere. But then when I go to, like, talk to them, and I'm like, hey, girl, how you doing? I realize, like, they don't even speak English, <laughs> right? And, well, I'm like, oh, snap. Like, we can be black, but, like, not the same kind of black. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, we've had some struggles with getting together and getting an agenda and saying, hey, let's run for, like, the state of Minnesota's vice chair of the Democratic Party because um, people are coming at this now from different perspectives. It was easier in the 70s. In the 70s, there was a formula. The formula was go to church, get the message, organize in your community, and people hadn't moved to suburbs yet. It wasn't, it wasn't that complicated. Now, you know, it's all over the map. None that um, Minneapolis um, has um, a black trans council member. You know, some people are transphobic. We have a huge queer community. 
Um, you know, some people don't know how to, like, you know, cross bridges and work with queer people. So, I mean, now that you have, like, immigrants, trans, queer, and then, you know, multiracial, because, you know, it wasn't legal to have mixed-race kids until 67. Um, so most of my peers are not mixed-race. Um, I, I think that the game has changed. Mm-hmm. Which, which makes it more complex. Yeah. But... N- but impediments are can can be overcome. Right. I mean, we need an agenda to bring us all together. How to do that, girl? That's above my pay grade. If I had the answer to that, I would. The moving van would be coming to my house right now, and you know, <laughs> I'd be going to work. You know, I mean, I, I I would be in a different place in my life if I could just answer that off the cuff. Okay, uh, let's move to some some things that you have in your writing that in your publications that he, you have been uh, been able to assess and analyze. Let's let's talk about your book #MeToo. Oh yeah. In the con- yes. in the context of all of the discussion, all of the contradictions, all of the misinformation about yeah. a gender fracture in the black community yeah. uh, as well as I, I see I don't know any people I, I really don't I mean I don't know any black people I don't know any people that I talk to that really don't understand that we're all in this Together, it's not about black right. men, and it's not about black women, even though there there's some uh, intersectionality, and and I hate to use that word because uh, it just gives me a headache. But that uh, me too is about men too. I mean, it's definitely about men. I mean, in fact, one of the spokespeople for me too was Terry Crews. And for listeners, if you don't know who I'm talking about, he played the dad on um, Everybody um, Everybody Hates Chris, um, the comedy show based on Chris, Chris Rock, like going to high school. And so Terry Crews used to be a professional football player. He was 6'5 and close to 300 pounds. And some white Hollywood producer director grabbed him in the crotch. Um, and, you know, try to intimidate Terry Crews. And so Me Too is about men who have experienced this, and it's also about the men who love women who've experienced this. So we have to be in this all together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what brought you to, and I, were, uh, I, I wondered this when the book was published, too, uh, what, what struck you? to write about that movement? Oh, my gosh. What struck me is that the leader of it is Tarana Burke, who's a black woman. Tarana, you know, so the, the person who conceptualized Me Too is a black woman. And people, you know, often erase black women. The Black Lives Matter movement was started by three black women. And then people don't even know how to say Breonna Taylor's name and think that that's like a member of Congress's name. So, you know, that is, that, that is why I was like, you know, people need to realize that Me Too was not started by the actress Alyssa Milano. 
I don't even know who that is. <laughs> oh my gosh, okay. she was just like this, like kind of child actress who was on that show, Who's the Boss, back in the eighties, and she had tweeted me too, and people were like, "Oh, go Alyssa Milano," and, and you know, folks were like, "No, it's actually Tarana Burke, so who's like a sister girl from the Bronx." Do you think we've had much progress since you wrote the book? Actually, I think that there's been a stagnation with attention to Me Too stuff. Um, Partly because there's so many distractions right now, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the things Mm -hmm. that Trump has done since Me Too tried to get off the ground has people not even being able to keep up. I mean, I I think that um, Black Lives Matter in some ways had more momentum than Me Too because it was allowed to coincide with COVID. So with me living in the Minneapolis Twin Cities, I know what the difference was between May 25th, May 26th, and May 27th, Right. May 25th was Memorial Day. I was living my best life. I remember exactly what I was doing. I was feeling good. May 26th, George Floyd was killed. It took people a while to find out and, like, get all the details. By May 27th, the city was on fire. Even with COVID, people were wearing masks, like, burning it down. And so, um, you know, Black Lives Matter was really the only you know, policy issue movement that has been able to keep afloat during COVID. You know, I I get a little chaos in my brain um, because of the hashtag Black Lives Matter and the way in which it has trans. Uh, Transpolated in or or it, it means different things to, to different people to different um, groups and and groups of uh, uh, ideology and politics. It means a lot of things. So it, it, I I and and correct me if I'm wrong. I think that the movement Black Lives Matter has had to take a back seat to the proclamation Black Lives Matter. What's your take on that? Oh, see, I think it's all over the map, and maybe some of it has to do with where people live. I mean, I don't think where George Floyd was killed, okay? I mean, the president of McAllister College has a Black Lives Matter sign in her front yard now. I mean, the movement here is everywhere, every day. It has white people in it. And so I think that, yeah, it's really geographically specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I do. I think people think about it differently than the actual uh, organization, Black Lives Matter. I've got to take a break, Duchess, and I know that uh, oh, I yeah, promised you. Oh, yeah, I've been you... here an hour. Yeah, I could, I could probably, you know, 
to see see what my teenagers are doing. They could they could be doing anything. Okay, I'm gonna take a break. You go t- check on Avi because um, she's probably got her agenda going. <laughs> she is so big now. Exactly. I can't believe it. Um, and when we come back, um, I have I, I'd like to talk about uh, how we begin and how as you as a professor. Uh, help your students to understand all of this in terms of what is America. What what really are we dealing with and how much damage to young people uh, this Trump administration has done when they think about democracy. You're listening to Our Common Ground, our guest tonight, Dr. Miriam Duchess Harris. Uh, she is the chair of the American Studies Program at McAllister College in Minnesota. And we're going to come right back. Thank you for being with us. Our number is 347-838-9852. And in our second hour, um, we are going to talk about COVID. We are going to talk about the Great Divide. We are going to talk about um, Trump and why he doesn't seem to understand some things about over. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you on the other side. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're listening to... It It didn't matter what day of the week it was. Come 6 a.m., my dad would come through that door and say, put your shoes on, son, get ready. If I asked why, he'd say, because there's something for you to do. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but be ready. I'm Reverend Raphael Warnock, and I've spent my entire life trying to be ready. I grew up right here in the Caton Homes housing projects of Savannah, Georgia. I had 11 sisters and brothers. We were short on money, 
but long on love and faith. Our parents taught us the value of hard work. Dad was a veteran, a small businessman, and a preacher. He spent most days picking up old junk cars that others had thrown away and hauling them to the local steel yard. He saw their value. And then Sunday morning, he preached to people who themselves felt discarded. He saw value in them too. Mom grew up in Waycross, Georgia, where she spent her summers picking cotton and tobacco. But she told us that we could do anything that we put our minds to. And so, with the love of my parents and the encouragement of my community, I went to Morehouse College on a full faith scholarship. I didn't know how I would pay for it, but I graduated college, earned a PhD degree, and 14 years ago, the kid who grew up in the projects was called to Martin Luther King Jr.'s pulpit. I became the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Change still has a chance in the church that changed America. He's senior pastor of one of the most prominent churches in America. Raphael Warnock not only preaches the gospel, but uses it as a platform for change. Dr. King called it the drum major instinct, the urge to lead. Warnock has it and a sense of his place in this place. Some might ask why a pastor thinks he should serve in the Senate. Well, I've committed my whole life to service and helping people realize their highest potential. I've always thought that my impact doesn't stop at the church door. That's actually where it starts. And I love this country. And I believe that what makes America so great is that we've always had a path to make it greater. Greater for people like the ones I've counseled at my church and others like them across this state. Like my father used to tell me every morning, whatever it is, be ready. And I think Georgia is ready. Ready to stand up for the family who's tried to do everything right. But when they receive one bad medical diagnosis, they realize that the cost of being sick is too much. Ready to fight for the dignity of workers who are paid too little and pushed aside as government works for Wall Street corporations. Ready because I realize that a kid who grows up in the projects today and struggling families across Georgia have it harder now than I did back then. I'm Reverend Raphael Warnock, and I'm ready. I'm ready to be your senator. If Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that, that's the first thing. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans beating this old message of debt. You got Mitt Romney standing in front of a dead clock now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another death fight. As they The best of political talkback. Common sense. Right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics. 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 Friday night at TruthWorks Network. 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show.
thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. As a past run runoff for Georgia Senate, but as the Doug Jones of 2020, where we know that the essential nature of this election changes the future of our country, protects health care, protects access to jobs, and protects access to justice. We need to remember that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are the only ways that we can guarantee that Mitch McConnell will actually finally pass legislation to renew recovery investment, to help protect those jobs for retail workers, for low-wage workers who are suffering, are going to go into Christmas, go into New Year's, not knowing if they're going to be able to stay in their homes. John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, GASenate.com, that's the only way we can make certain that the future we need comes to fruition with Joe Biden as our president. And now back to Janice. And we thank you so much for being here with us at Our Common Ground. Um, Dr. Harris's uh, call dropped, and I'm hoping she'll call back in. But while I have you, um, it's gasenate.com, and I think we all ought to have our eyes on this. There is no way that we can avoid the kind of cock I'll call it a cock block that's going to go on in the U.S. Senate in this new administration unless the Democrats are able to um, be the majority. Um, they've got one traitorous uh, Senate, a senator, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, who has already declared that he will vote with the uh, Republicans if there's a 50-50. And so this Senate race in Georgia is very important. And what I'm asking our Common Ground uh, listeners to do is to take a look at how you might be able to help uh, in that race. And there are a number of things that can be done right from your telephone uh, right from your email client uh, to assist in fighting back um, and fighting, advocating for uh, these two Democratic candidates. You know, one of the things is that we can't get around, we cannot get around. The reality is that we are in this country in a two-party system. I also want to uh, let you know, and we're going to finish up our, our, our discussion with uh, Dr. Harris, but I also want you to know that Our Common Ground is adding uh, to the lineup. We're going to be doing a new show on Wednesday night, which is called Post Hawk at Our Common Ground, which means that I'm trying to make opportunity for callers at 347-838-9852 to get into our program. And usually on Saturday night we have, a, we have guests that um, we don't always get the time. I also re, uh, want to remind you about TruthWorks Network, which is uh, a sponsored channel 
uh, the Alpha Show on Friday night at 10 p.m. Um, we need to be talking. Um, you know, if it were, if it, if I had my, if I had my superpower hat on, I would be saying, you know, on Monday we're talking about reparations. On Tuesday we're talking about um, of federal programs. On on Thursday we would be talking about how the government works, the civics lessons, etc. But we're going to go back to Dr. Harris, and I know that she has to leave. Duchess, thank you so much for for being with us. You you just help to clarify, you know, your your particular um, intellect about what is America is so rich and so important for 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 black people to understand that this is America, and I know I. You know, I spell it with three K's, but uh, <laughs> but we talk about this thing called democracy. Mm, yes, and 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 you know, and uh, many black people um, don't trust that word, and I think that young people who give it some thought don't understand it. What is democracy in America and what is the stamp that we mm-hmm. ought to be looking for as we go out of the calamity? Mm. That That's fantastic. Um, you know, like we need to be talking about democracy because often people say our democracy is broken and my response to that is no, it's actually working the way it was built. And it really wasn't built for us or by us. And if we historicize it, the Electoral College was set up, um, and it was set up during slavery because Southerners um, were so upset that um, – there was more population in the North that to kind of quell the um, anger of the white plantation owners, um, they were given the ability to count um, three out of five of their enslaved African peoples as one um, person for the population so that they could have congressional representation. So, you know, congressional representation has never been fair. Um, The Electoral College um, has never been fair. Um, The fact that um, California, which is the fifth largest economy in the world, has two United States senators and Rhode Island has two United States senators isn't fair. Um, The fact that, you know, Puerto Rico isn't a part of the Electoral College. Um, and people in Puerto Rico are U.S. citizens. Um, it's just not set up to work in a way that benefits us. So are we ready to have a constitutional uh, convention? Oh, my gosh. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, you know, I mean, we need to revamp, right? And that, to me, really is what's different from the centrists and the progressives. The centrists want to keep it the way that it is 
and just get people who are different. So if you can be a centrist to moderate Democrat and happen to be brown, a lot of people in the party are like, that's fantastic. Then you have, like, this new wing of the party, which is, like, growing, right, that started off with, um, you know, the squad and now is getting bigger. Um, That's like, no, maybe we should move some stuff around. Yeah, and then then I'm not seeing that message in the congressional priorities. I'm not hearing that from Nancy Pelosi. I'm not hearing that from Chuck Schumer. Um, so it, it, it is concerning. And I'm also, uh, what are your thoughts about um, what we are, what I am sensing uh, of the internal war, well, internal fight, internal confrontation that is going to come with between uh, the progressive uh, leanings in the House with Nancy Pelosi in the leadership. I mean, I think that there already have there already have been tensions. There will continue to be tensions. I mean, it's multi. You know, it's it's the generation gap, right? It is it is the war of philosophies. So, you know, Pelosi is what, is she in her early eighties? Maybe she's in the late seventies. But I mean, I think she's I think she's a, a peer of Maxine Waters. She's Maxine eighty Waters something. Yeah. Okay, so uh-huh. she's in her eighties. AOC is in her thirties. Like, I mean, why would we expect them to see the world similarly, right? And so, I mean, of course, it's not going to line up, right? I mean, all of these women, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the woman from Michigan, Elon Omar, Ayanna Presley, AOC, you know, these women are under 50. It's a different worldview. So how do we begin to try to advocate for a more progressive, aggressive uh, voice in the House when the trust, and see, I keep going back to the trust. There are reasons why people say, well, I don't trust any of them. Part of that has to do with that there's no open communications with key elected officials, but the other part has to do with no one seems to be speaking the same language as the hardworking people on the street. Right, right. Um I mean, one of the problems is the minute you get elected, the first thing they tell you to do is to start your um, fundraising campaign for your next election. So once you're in office, you realize the only way that you're going to stay there um, is with money. And then, you know, once people start giving you money, you know, there's there's expectations. I mean, there's nothing free. And so I think that um, that's one of the things that makes – Politics messy. Politics is different from community organizing. 
You know, if you are the head of, you know, the NAACP, it's different than being a member of Congress. And, and part of it is like, um, you know, the way congressional districts are drawn, um, you know, there's always areas that might not be as enthusiastic about you. So a perfect example is um, the issue of defunding the police. Now, the leadership of the Minneapolis NAACP has been women who are under 30 for, like, the last, like, say, four years maybe. Um, You know, they're going to say defund the police. Um, People who want to get reelected that live in a different congressional district are going to be nervous about saying defund the police. Well, in in my mind, we haven't had some kind of shared vision about what that means, the the definitions of of, of oh, what that means. Like, I yeah, I don't feel clear. Like I don't feel clear about it. But I also know that some people don't even want to say it. Like some people don't even want it to come out of their mouth. Yeah, you know. They blanch. Yeah, I mean, but that has to do with the fact that people have different interests. And also people live in different neighborhoods. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the mind for me is going back to the hard stuff. And the hard stuff is transforming the way in which we educate, teach, and train uh, in our community uh, that which we are doing. But I don't think that enough work has been done in that area because you, you have to start people at some common ground. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not sure if this administration is going to take any leadership on on that in, in that in the, on that front. Um, and my question, I'm really concerned about the losses that the Democratic Party had. Uh, there were 12 um, uh, Republicans gained 12 seats in the House. And that's that should be troubling to all of us because well, I mean, for I some reason all of it's troubling. I think the fact that seventy two million people voted for Donald Trump in the midst of a global pandemic is troubling. Right? You're right about that. You're right about that. Um, you know, you wrote a book, uh, some years back. I don't know exactly what year it was published in um my daughter and I both read it together which we often do and it was on the transformation of american identity oh yeah yeah you, yeah. you remember that book <laughs> <laughs> yeah among all the books and yeah. and one of the things that you the one of the premise of that book is that this country has is in an evolution mm-hmm. that we're always progressing towards something. 
and and I'm wondering how we get people to understand how they they contextualize uh, their experiences. How do black people contextualize? I mean, um, how does the woman who is the head of the tenants organization in the housing develop in the public housing development contextualize Black Lives Matter? Well, I mean, the only way we're able to contextualize ourselves in relationship to all the things that are happening is to acknowledge that we are different. You know, your show is Mm -hmm. called Common Ground. I think our common ground is to acknowledge that we might not have common ground and we need to find it. Mhm, mhm, mhm. The hour and is so very important yeah. in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like who who are we? And you know, we need to just say we're we're not all the same. And just by doing that, it helps it helps us get closer to having an, um, a common ground. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that I love about having lived all of these years through so many movements and so many adjustments and and volcanic uh, eruptions in this country is I've come to the point where the work that you do, the work, I mean, I'm reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and even though I am shook, I can contextualize how these things have evolved. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes I have to put the book away because uh, I am shook. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you translate that uh, into people who you hope will become? Activists, organizers, educators, um, outside of the uh, academia. I know that you've done some fabulous work at McAllister um, in engaging the communities of interest. But how, how do you how do you do that? I mean, um, it's about collaborating. Help. You know, I mean, it's just really about collaborating. Um, some academics are better than others with getting a message, you know, outside of, you know, the green lawns of the college campus. Um, and, and so, you know, it's just, it's, it's the effort that we put in. I mean, that's Mm -hmm, all we can mm -hmm. say, you know, sometimes I hit it, sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I think about, uh, as an organizational behaviorist is um, that you have to meet, and I say it a lot, that you have to meet black people where they are. Amen to that. (laughs) You know, you, you can't go into a community and think that your experience is similar or the same as all black people. So when you're talking about these critical issues like defunding the police, police reform, 
you have to start with something. And, and, and one of the things that we ought to note is that police brutality and the issue of reforming how we do law, law enforcement in this country didn't start with George Floyd, but when people watched those eight minutes and 46 seconds, it informed them in the place that they were. Exactly, exactly. And and somehow we have to build the skills uh, to translate what that is. You know, uh, you know like I, I talk to a lot of people who are, uh, intellectuals on the black left. I read the Black Agenda Report, and I always sure. uh, tell jokes about or have something uh, smart to say to Glenn Ford, who's the uh, editor of the Black Agenda Report. Well, when I invite you to my community to speak to my groups, make sure you bring your translator. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, wow. And, you know. And and I think that as we organize, everybody has to bring their translator. Um, so what's what's in the future for you, Duchess? Oh, what are you wow. writing? You know, no one ever no, no one ever asks me that, right? Like no one ever asks me that. So um, I'm delighted by that question. Um, I will have a book available for pre-order next month. And then I think you'll really be able to get it in January. It's called Justice for George Floyd. Whoa. So I'm delighted with it because it's for fourth to eighth graders and it helps young people understand what happened this summer. So mm-hmm. I feel really good about that. I, let's talk about your collection because I yeah. bought I bought five sets of your collection. <laughs> get out. And Stop it, yeah, I did. It. I well, because I love you. You know I love you, and um, I donated one to my grandchildren's schools, my my grandson's schools, uh, for their library, one each, and then I had two people who are teachers. And I donated those, and of course I have one set here in my house, in my library. But tell us about the collection, and and why you decided to do that. And I love the way in which you have your children involved in your <laughs> in, in your project. <laughs> yeah, my my, uh. my Zach, who is. Um, our youngest, he he and I did a podcast together, and it was before his voice changed. So, uh, you know, I'm so glad I have a record of that because he's 14 now and he sounds like a little man. Um, you know, just I was inspired to try to leave behind for them what I didn't have, um, and I hope someone picks up the mantle and takes it further than what I've been able to do. Um, it's just fun and exciting. And, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, I encourage anyone who's listening, if you put in your search engine, Duchess Harris Collection, um, it'll be the first thing that pops up. And you can see um, the variety of the selection. Well, I'm I'm really glad. So 
so your future includes continuing with the with the Duchess collection. You know, it does, it does it does somewhat, right? Because um, you know, it it'll it it'll be five years since that has started. And so I am not sure if there might be something next. Um and and so we're we're gonna see. I I think that I'm gonna have some changes in my career in 2021 um, that might, you know, allow me to do some different things. All yeah, of it making yeah. a contribution, but maybe in a different way. So the core library is a guide to racism in America. Uh, you have the yeah, history of racism in America. Stuff. Yep, that's okay. All that's the new stuff. Month. Okay, that's the new and, stuff. And and policing in America is another yeah. part, and this is for third to eighth graders, right? Actually, more time on around fourth. We've been trying to figure out how high the level the reading is, and it's and yeah. it's a little bit more yeah. than third grade. Uh huh. For our listeners, you know, the Freedom's Promise Set One, which is actually my favorite. I, I guess I shouldn't have favorites, but it's these fun. are all books. <laughs> Is that your favorite? Oh, you have favorites? Um, I have favorites. But <laughs> the, the, the Barbara Jordan, politician and civil rights leader, um, Hidden Heroes, the Human Computers of NASA, which really tells the story of your grandmother. And then you have uh, the one on um, the... the, the the Negro National Anthem, the story of the Black National Anthem. I mean, these are just wonderful, wonderful books. And then there's the Crime and Punishment, and then there's the Slavery One, um, and a Race in American Law. I mean, it's it, it just so expansive. And I want to thank you, uh, Duchess Harris, uh, for it. And well, I wrote to the Boston Public Library. <laughs> I want to tell you, I wrote to the Boston Public Library and said, here is what you need to have in your library at every branch. And one of the sets, I checked the Roxbury um, uh, branch of the Boston Public Library, and they didn't have it, and I gave them one of my sets. So thank you oh, so wow. very much. So oh is, it, is the Biden administration going to be calling on you? Um, <laughs> you know, um, is John going to let is John going to let the call come through? Is the question. I I I think John would be delighted by the call. Um, I'm not sure if they have my number, but um, you know, maybe someone will share my number with them. Like, you know, I don't I don't know, Janice. Well, the Department of Justice has been, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division has been dismantled. It has gone zero silent. And that is one of the things that I have been writing to the Biden-Harris campaign about. And Simone, uh, what's her name, did send me an email. Simone, Simone oh, Sanders did send me an email uh, back, but one of the things wow. that I have suggested to them is that they have a fellowship 
uh, in partnership with either Morgan State University or Spelman College or whoever, one, one of the HBCUs, maybe Howard. Uh, and this fellowship should be just about the remnants of what race, systemic structural racism has done in this country and how we fix it. So, well, if they put that um, together, I'd be glad I to even, read it. I even, told them, I even told them you should have 25 <laughs> fellows. 25 fellows, and every fellow would be responsible for two states. So <laughs> I got ideas, Duchess. I got every. I sit here. I sit here, and all day long, I'm thinking about ideas, Duchess. I love it. I love it. Harris, professor, author, civic and justice activist. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're going to have to come back because once. Once January comes, mm-hmm. that is when we have to go on full watch. We'll full go on watch. full watch. And I mean, yes. I, it was an honor and a privilege to return. You have an excellent evening. And girl, you know, I love you like cooked food. <laughs> I see what you're cooking out there. I see what you're <laughs> cooking out there. You know, that's what I'm saying. Well, we're going to, certainly after the pandemic, we're going to have to have a reunion. That's what we're going to have to have. Thank you so very much, and good night. Okay. Uh, Dr. Miriam Duchess Harris, and it is the Duchess Collection. You also can reach her on Facebook. She's everywhere, and she can be reached if you have any questions or would like to find out what she's doing. You can uh, she can be reached at uh, DuchessHarris.com, and I hope you do. So, uh, how are you doing tonight at our common ground? Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. A number of things I've got to talk to you about. One of the things is we want to make sure that you are on board on our Facebook page, which I've been really trying to get off of Facebook. It's facebook.com OCG Talk Radio. Write it down. OCG Talk Radio is our Facebook page. You can also follow us at Janice OCG and at TWN Talk for TruthWorks Network. But on Wednesday night, we're going to spin off our new show, which is All Callers All Night, so that I can be rid of all of the email that I get about not taking callers. Um, I mean, I got reamed for last week. One of the things we're going to do with post hoc, P-O-S-T-H-O-C, is to follow up on things that we talk about here on Saturday night with our guests and also bring in some people who just want to talk, you know, one or two people. uh, For instance, I have um, some people who want to talk who think that I don't give enough time to the black left and blacks against capitalism. Um, And I know that I had 
promised that here at our common ground on Saturday night that I was going to do a an entire month on nothing but the issue of reparations. But there was so much chaos and noise going on around the election, I decided not to do that, but we are still going to uh, do that. On Tuesday night coming up, I'm going to be doing uh, an interview with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, uh, who is uh, in Scotland. And because of the time difference and some other technical things that we can't accommodate, um, and we will schedule a review of that interview and hopefully at a time when he's back in the U.S. visiting or what, whatever. Um, the other thing that I want to ask is that each one of you get at least three people when you receive our program announcement by email to at least forward it to three people. We've got to build this show again. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19, the pandemic. The new, uh, the president-elect says that he's got a plan and that he's going to be rolling out his plan, <coughs> excuse me, as soon as he gets um, in the seat or however it's going to work out. But in the meantime, I think that we have to encourage people to have a safety plan. And that is, what are you going to do for the holiday? How are you going to do it for the holiday? I'm hoping that people will note that the medical community and the science science community, um, the CDC and the NIH and the WHO are all advising people to forego the normal, traditional Thanksgiving and Christmas family gatherings because they are all they are advising us that small family gatherings are the gatherings that are our highest risk in indoor small family gatherings is causing the surge. And I'm hoping that people take that seriously. If you are watching the news, if you're watching reports on the pandemic, you are now seeing people, young people, older people, uh, survivors who suffer. And I'm hoping that we can begin to get out of a mindset that it won't be me. Um, that's not to say that you have to be totally isolated. Here 
in Florida, we have the ability to be outdoors, to have outdoor activities, to walk, to go to, to go to parks and socially distancing. In other locations, like where uh, Duchess is in Minnesota, my family in New England, Alpha in Chicago, Michelle in um, El Michelle in New York. Being outdoors is not going to be an option soon. Even though I'm one of those people, I love taking walks in the cold. Just bundle up. Hey, by the way, you know, I really miss buying my winter coat. Usually by this time, Friday, whatever they call it, Black Friday, blah, blah, blah. I don't know when Black Friday, but I keep getting all the email about Black Friday. That's when every year I would buy a new winter coat. And I'm, I, I, you can't even wear a jacket where I am. It's so friggin' hot. And I miss those things. I really do. I just, I've had days where, um, I have wanted it to snow, and it's not gonna snow in Florida. So I, I just want to really encourage you to be careful, be safe, be smart. Black children are dying from this virus at a higher rate than any other children in this country. And that ought to be something that we pay attention. Now, um, so just stay safe. The other thing I want to talk about, and I'll take your calls. Well, I can't take. Well, I can't take your calls. Three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two is about not. Well, about paying attention to what is happening in your government from now until. Donald Trump leaves the White House, which is on January 20th. So there are going to be some things, I think, that are going to happen, and you're going to be discouraged and, and say, I can't be bothered with all this stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to cook my macaroni and cheese and call it a day. I'm not going to listen to what's happening. Uh, you still got Bill Barr, who is the most dangerous, um, demonic person that's ever sat in the U.S. Attorney General's seat. And he still believes that he has the courts on his in his favor. Mitch McConnell is going to continue to fill open vacancies in courts all over this country, and that is going to happen. And one of the things that we have to know is that judges can be recalled. The other kind of thing that will happen, I'm I'm really concerned, and I, I called into the Alpha show last night and talked with Alpha about this, is what Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, is up to in Israel. 
I do not believe that the Republican complicit traitors and those who would betray this country are going to walk away from Iran. I do not believe that that is going to happen. I believe that that is the reason that this president and all his minions have moved on the Pentagon. Not that the person they replaced was going to do anything about it, but, you know, sometimes you have a little hope, you have a little hope, and try to stay strong. So I think we need to have our eye on all of these things that um and 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 we will have to have patience and be tolerant. I know all of you want to see Donald Trump in jail and his whole Trump family in prison and it will take some time, but I I want to warn you right now. Donald Trump will never serve any time in prison. He will not serve any time in prison unless he does something which is so base around the national security of this country in the next 69 days. He just won't. So um, I think we need to keep our eye on that. Um, I hope you'll join me on post hoc where we're going to be talking about whether Joe Biden is living is listening and we're going to be also talking about the black left there are some people around this country in the black left uh who have uh some good advice some sage advice uh about how we move politically in the next 4 years and I want to introduce some of them because we still we do have to get to the issue of black economic inequality, the issue of black wealth. And in addition to reparations, there are some other things, structural things in our community that we have to begin to examine. And it won't be... Um, As I told my grandson uh, a couple of nights ago, it won't be selling used sneakers. (laughs) It will not. And it won't come from day traders. I think that one of the most important issues uh, before us is how we begin to use the resources, your taxpayer dollars, how we begin to use the resources of the Department of Commerce how we begin to use the resources of the FHA, Fannie Mae, and HUD, how we begin to restructure. I mean, there is no reason that we should be going back to what was in the Department of Justice. We should be going to a new um, kind of structure in the Department of Justice. Um, Reform is not just for uh, policing in this country. I think reform is around 
law enforcement, which means enforcing the laws that we know of. So, you know, we've we, we've got to be vigilant, really vigilant. And if you can, as we go out tonight, make sure that you are um, thinking about trying to help us, trying to help out in this Georgia race. It's really, it's really, really important uh, because Georgia is on my mind, and I don't have a midnight train to Georgia, but I do have an understanding that Georgia is going to be key to all of this. Good night, and thank you all for joining us. Uh, We'll see you on Wednesday night at Post Talk. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I think it has to do with organized greed, organized hatred, and organized corruption. Not just in the White House, but in the ways in which Wall Street domination, the ways in which the Pentagon, military and money, big military and money have come together and are beginning to suck out the rich energies of one of the great democratic experiments in the modern world, the USA, and all of its flaws. Its democratic elements and democratic practices seem to be so weak and feeble. Well, I think America has to acknowledge itself as an empire, make the connection between the the militarizing that's taking place domestically, police, mass incarceration, and the 800 military bases, and the 211 interventions in 67 countries since 1945. That connection between militarism abroad, militarism internally, needs to be wrestled with something that Martin Luther King Jr. understood very well before his death in 1968. The 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves.